Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to uh, John chapter 6. John 6, for those of you visiting with us today, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to John chapter 6, verse 22, and my goal today is to cover verses 22 through 40, and the title of the message is very simple. Jesus, the bread of life. Jesus, the bread of life. For many of my growing up years, uh, our family had dogs. Uh, And with all of our dogs, I often found myself uh, giving in to the temptation to hand them food uh, under the table Uh, during our family meals. And over those years, I I learned two things about dogs that I'm sure all of you have learned. Number one, you feed a dog once and you have a friend for life. And number two, feed a dog once and he's going to keep coming back to you for more. And that's the way it is to this day with the dog that my wife and I have in our home. This phenomenon is not, however, only the case with dogs, but sometimes with humans. And we see this happening in our passage today. We have seen earlier in chapter 6 how Jesus performed a miracle of turning a few loaves and fish into a fully satisfying meal for 5,000 men plus women and children And one might think that everyone in this crowd would simply be grateful for this miracle and go home praising God for this amazing moment in which they got to experience the kindness and the generosity of Jesus. But that is not what happened. We saw in verse 15 of John 6 how it was that no sooner had Jesus fed this multitude that they wanted to take him by force and make him king. And we saw how Jesus withdraws himself from the crowd to prevent this from happening and how he even sends his disciples across the sea of Galilee in a boat. And we saw how during the wee hours of the morning, Jesus himself walks upon the water and across the water to the other side to join his disciples in being away from that crowd that wanted to make him king. And in our passage today, we're going to see how this very crowd of people looks for Jesus and ends up finding Jesus on the next day, and they're going to try to get him to give them a lifetime supply of food. In fact, in verse 34, they're going to say to Jesus, Lord, always give us this bread. With the abundance that we experience here in the United States, many of us know little of what it's like to struggle to put food on the table. We know little of what it is like to live with no guarantee of our next meal. So it's hard for us to 
I think, identify with this crowd in Galilee that is pursuing Jesus. But before we're too hard on them, we should try to put ourselves in their sandals for a moment. And Chuck Swindoll helps us to do this. In his commentary on this passage, he says these words, John emphasizes the fact that each person in this crowd received as much as he or she desired and that the provision of food exceeded their capacity to eat. Undoubtedly, for many of them, this was the first time in a long time that they had gone to bed on a full stomach. Finally, after so much suffering under the iron rule of Rome, after so much deprivation at the hands of unjust aristocrats, after so much corruption in the temple, God had sent a Savior, Jesus the healer, the provider, the reformer, the king. Certainly, his arrival signaled the beginning of a revolution that would end poverty, restore justice, and usher the kingdom of God into another golden era. This was, after all, the promise of God delivered throughout the Old Testament from Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel, unquote. I think Swindoll's words help us to understand what this crowd would be thinking and feeling after experiencing this miracle from Jesus and why it was that they didn't just head home after this miracle, but actually they pursued Jesus the following day in order to receive even more from him. And given the circumstances, if we were in this situation, I suspect that many of us would have done exactly the same thing. Observe what happens beginning in verse 22. The text says, the next day, in other words, the day after Jesus feeds the 5,000, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea, in other words, the other side of the sea than the one that Jesus and his disciples are now on after their trip across the sea the night before. It says, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw, and this could be translated, they had seen. In other words, they had seen the night before that there was no other small boat there except one and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone, in other words, without him. Thankfully, as this crowd is standing on the shore on this particular morning, the morning after the feeding of the 5,000, verse 23, there came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now, in all likelihood, um, people from Tiberias, which is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, are bringing these boats right now to this side of the sea in order to capitalize on the money-making opportunity to transport the remnants of this crowd back to the northwestern side of the sea where many of them lived. 
which makes it evident that many of this crowd from the day before had spent the night in the fields, hoping to stay near to where they thought that Jesus was and hoping to see him this morning. And now here they stand on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, sizing up the situation and observe what is said in verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, in other words, he was not there on the northeastern side of the sea where the crowd still is, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats. In other words, the small boats that had come from Tiberias. And they came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And Capernaum is on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And to their great delight, all their efforts to find Jesus are rewarded. They found him in Capernaum, and they've got a question for him. Look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Their question seems like an innocent question, but it is loaded with an agenda. They're asking Jesus when he arrived, but embodied in their question is also, how did you get here? Some commentators suggest that the people in this crowd uh, suspect that Jesus had gone across the sea in some miraculous way, and they want to hear about it. Others suggest that the crowd is just wanting to know why he's trying to elude them. Others suggest they're just trying to make conversation, showing up this morning. Hey, Jesus, how are you doing? Ready to engage with him. What is undeniable, though, is that the reason that they are now standing in front of Jesus is because they desire more food from him. And Jesus sees through their seemingly innocent question and launches into an exchange with them that will teach them where their focus really ought to be, and that is on feasting on him as the bread of life. And as we look at the remaining verses in our text for today, we're going to observe five acts of Jesus, five acts of Jesus to teach this pursuing crowd about himself as the bread of life. And act number one is this, he challenges them to work for the eternal bread he gives. He challenges them to work for the eternal bread that he gives. It's fascinating to me that Jesus doesn't even bother even answering the question that they ask in verse 25. When they say, hey, when did you get here? Most of us would have been happy to answer that question and say, well, you know, I got here in the wee hours of this morning because I walked across the water being the Messiah and all. I can do that. We would have been happy to answer this question and explain how it was that we got to this side of the sea. But that's not what Jesus does. He ignores their question and cuts right to the chase and goes right to the reason that his audience is even there. Observe what Jesus does in verse 26. 
Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Essentially, Jesus is saying to them, you're not seeking me because you understand what my feeding of the 5,000 truly signifies. You're seeking me because you ate the loaves and your stomachs were left full and you want more of that physical food. This is one of those statements in the Gospel of John that Jesus makes that begin with the words truly, truly. And what follows is a truth statement about the motivations in the hearts of these people that are seeking him. They've not come to him admitting to these motives, but Jesus sees into their heart and he knows their motive and he tells them what he knows to be true about them. So take a lesson from what Jesus does here. If you want a relationship with Jesus, you need to realize that he's the kind of savior who sees you inside and out, and he will tell you the truth about yourself down to your motivations. You may not like what he says. What he says in the moment may leave you not feeling very good in the moment, but he knows everything about you, and he's gonna speak the truth to you that he knows and you will want to receive everything he says to you because he is the ultimate truth teller and your eternal well-being depends on you listening to him and in our passage here Jesus tells these people the truth about themselves and then he gives them a challenge and a promise in verse 27 Look at what he says in verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. These people were clearly doing a lot of work for the physical bread that they wanted Jesus to give to them, they initially tried to take him by force and make him king. Now they've traveled across the sea to find him. They have the nerve to approach Jesus and start a conversation with him, saying, when did you get here? These people are pursuing Jesus more diligently than many of us have pursued Jesus this past week. But they are doing so merely so that they can get physical bread from him. And to them, Jesus is essentially saying, stop working so hard for the physical food that perishes and start working for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, I, the Son of Man, will give to you if you'll take it. That's what you ought to be working for, Jesus is saying. And the reason you guys ought to be working for this kind of bread that the Son of Man gives is because it is on Him that the Father God has placed His seal. He is the one. He's saying, I am the one who has the seal of approval from God to deliver this special eternal bread to you. 
So Jesus has told them to work for the bread that he gives, which endures to eternal life. And once that crowd hears this counsel from Jesus, they immediately wonder what kind of works Jesus is talking about. And this leads us to the second act of Jesus to teach this pursuing crowd about himself as the bread of life. Number two, he identifies the work of God they must do to receive the bread he gives. He identifies the work of God that they must do in order to receive the bread he gives. Observe what happens in verse 28. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Evidently, the people in this crowd are all in. They're ready to do great works for God in order that they might earn this bread from Jesus that endures to eternal life. And they are, no doubt, expecting a list of things to do from Jesus. And they're a confident bunch, too. As D.A. Carson says, quote, they display no doubt about their intrinsic ability to meet any challenge that Jesus may give to them. Beyond that, there are a couple of things worth pointing out here. First of all, these people have already worked pretty hard to get to Jesus, and yet they're ready to do even more work in order to earn this bread that Jesus is offering to give to them. Secondly, it's amazing how focused these people are on themselves and what they need to do. As the commentator Edward Klink says, and I love this, he says, in spite of all the shocking things that Jesus has just revealed, that he is the Son of Man, that the Father has placed his seal upon him, and that Jesus can provide eternal life, it is surprising to see the focus of these people land merely on the works that they must do to get bread from Jesus. The Son of Man has just declared who He is and what He can do, and all these people can think about is themselves and what they can do, unquote. What we're seeing in these people is the essence of man-made religion where the focus is on human effort and human merit rather than on God and what he does, and the mercy and grace that he shows. Keep in mind that these Jews are probably thinking about the blessings that God promised in Deuteronomy 28. You know, the, the list of blessings that God gives to those who obey the law. In Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 and 2, God says to the children of Israel, now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And then among those blessings, God says in verse 5, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. In other words, your bread making bowl. So with a promise like this in mind, these Jews are asking Jesus what they need to do in order to generate this kind of 
blessing of life-giving bread from him every day all the way through eternity. Their orientation here is very much connected to the law and it's contractual. On top of that, they want to become employed by Jesus and do the works of God in order to receive from him a lifetime supply of groceries. And maybe you are here today and you're wondering what good works you need to do in order to receive the bread of life from Jesus forever. If that's you, then I just want to encourage you to get a pen and some paper out and be prepared to write down the list of works that you must do revealed in Jesus' answer to these people in verse 29, where the text says, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent, period. End of list. Wow. That's it. These people use the word plural for works, expecting a list of things to do from Jesus. Jesus, in reply, uses the singular and essentially says to them, here's the one work of God that is needed in order for you to receive from me the bread that will endure to eternal life. Believe in him whom the Father has sent. What he's saying is believe in me. That's it. And notice that Jesus doesn't say this is your work that you must do. He's saying this is the work of God. At the very least, this means this is the work that God requires of you. But almost certainly, Jesus is flipping the meaning here to this is the work of God. This is the work that God accomplishes in you, a work he does in you that issues forth from you as you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus' language here in this whole passage indicates that the most important works connected to your salvation are the works being done by the Father and the Son. The Father has done the work of sending His Son. The Son is doing the work of going forth from the Father and giving out the bread that endures to eternal life. And on top of that, we're now learning here, God does the work of enabling people to believe in Jesus whom He has sent. And all that's left for any of us to do is to simply believe in Jesus and thereby receive the bread of life from Him. In a way, Jesus is kind of saying to these people, hey, think about yesterday and how much work you had to do yesterday to receive the loaves and fish from me. You guys do recall there was an instruction that the crowd was given. There was something they needed to do. And Jesus is reminding them kind of the only instruction that you guys were given yesterday was to sit down, literally to recline. That was it. That's all they had to do the day before to receive food from Jesus was recline and receive the food that was handed to them 
And Jesus is saying now in this passage, this is the way it is with the bread I give. And he's essentially speaking to them in a way that communicates to them the message that they need to allow God to bring them to a place where they simply recline and believe in Jesus as the giver of this bread that endures to eternal life and they will end up with the bread that they desire. And that's all you need to do as well in order to receive the bread that endures to eternal life from Jesus. Cease from your works, cease from your confidence in yourself and believe in him. And then give God all the glory for producing in you that faith in Christ. What Jesus is saying here is clear enough, but what's still left uncertain in the mind of his listeners is, what exactly is this bread that Jesus is telling us that we'll receive if we believe in him? Yes, it endures to eternal life. That's wonderful. But what is this bread exactly It's not what we're looking for, but it's something else. What is it? This leads us to the third act of Jesus to teach this pursuing crowd about himself as the bread of life. Number three, he points to himself. He points to himself as the all-satisfying bread of life that the Father gives. Observe how the people respond to Jesus in verses 30 and 31, the text says, So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. On one level, this is an astounding request from these people, and it should strike us as very odd for them to make this request of Jesus right after he miraculously fed the 5,000 men plus women and children from a few loaves and fish. And they seem to have viewed that miracle as a powerful sign the day before when it happened, but it seems that they've been thinking things over and they're less impressed with that miracle now that they've had the opportunity to sleep on it. And at first blush, if you really think about it, they might actually have a point. In the first place, Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 took place on only one occasion. Whereas under Moses, the people were fed with manna day after day after day after day, six days a week for 40 years. Secondly, Jesus provided bread for 5,000 men plus women and children. But under Moses, manna was provided for a whole nation of probably a million and a half people day by day. Thirdly, Jesus gave them ordinary bread that issued forth from five earthly barley loaves 
and two earthly fish, but under Moses, the children of Israel receive bread from heaven. That's the kind of language that the Old Testament uses to speak of the manna that they receive from God in the wilderness for 40 years. So in the minds of the people in this crowd, there are some very meaningful ways in which what Jesus did on the previous day was wonderful, but falls short of what they viewed Moses as having done. So they lay this challenge before Jesus, saying to him, you, you tell us that we need to believe in you, but verse 30, once again, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And they're quoting from Psalm 78, verse 24 here. And they are essentially asking Jesus, what do you do for a sign like that, that we may see and believe in you? Can you give us bread from heaven like Moses did? You need to do that if you want us to believe in you. That's essentially what they're saying. And you should probably know that in this day, there was a belief that when the Messianic age arrived, there would be manna literally falling from heaven again. This is what many of the rabbis believed and taught. There's even a passage from this very era making this belief clear. Uh, in 2 Baruch chapter 29, verse 8, which was non-inspired writing written during the very century in which John 6 is taking place, it says, and it shall come to pass at that self-same time that the treasury of manna shall again descend from on high, and they will eat of it in those years because they, because these are they who have come to the consummation of time. The passage I just read to you is not scripture. It's not inspired, but it does reflect what the expectation was of many of the Jews during this day. And so given this expectation, this crowd's question of Jesus is, what do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform of this magnitude? Their thought is, if you want us to believe in you as the Messiah, then provide manna for us from heaven that will meet our needs every day. And then we will believe that the messianic age has truly arrived and you are the Messiah. Well, observe Jesus' answer beginning in verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives, present tense, you the bread out of heaven. Jesus is saying, hey, in the first place, Moses was never the one who gave your fathers manna in the wilderness. It was God who did that. On top of that, the bread that came under Moses is something that came in the past and eventually ceased. Whereas right now, in this moment, God is giving you the true bread out of heaven 
that the manna was designed to point you to. The manna was not the true bread. I'm the true bread that the manna was pointing you to. And God is right now giving you this bread. How is this present bread from Jesus better than the manna under Moses? Listen to what Jesus says in verse 13. For the bread of God is that, and some of your translations say, the bread of God is he which comes down out of heaven and gives life to whom? To the world. Jesus is speaking of the present reality that the bread of God has come down out of heaven. It's right now giving life not just to the Jews, but will be giving life to people all over the world of every tribe and tongue and nation. It turns out that what God is in the process of doing right now here in John 6 far surpasses the miracle of the manna in Moses' day in terms of the scope of its recipients. Well, Jesus is dropping some huge hints about what the bread is that he's talking about, but the people still aren't picking up on what Jesus is trying to say here. Observe their response in verse 34. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. We want this bread that you are talking about. They aren't totally clear on what they're asking for, but to their credit, they're asking the right person and they're asking him to give them this bread always. In other words, they want a lifetime supply of this bread from Jesus. And listen to Jesus' reply in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. This is one of the great statements in the Gospel of John and in all of the Bible for that matter. I am the bread of life, Jesus announces. I am the bread that God has sent from heaven to satisfy the hunger of man and to nourish him for time and eternity. You guys are asking me to give you a sign so that you may see and believe. I am the sign that the Father is giving to you. Rather than giving you manna that lies on the ground for you to pick up and feed your physical appetite, the Father has sent you the bread of life, and that bread of life is me. As one writer summarizes Jesus' words here, Jesus is saying, I am the recipe for the human soul. I am the recipe for the human soul. As verse 35 continues, Jesus goes on to make a staggering promise, saying, he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Literally, he's saying, he who continually comes to me will never go hungry, and he who continually is believing in me will never go thirsty. It's not talking about here a one-time feeding on Jesus, but a continual coming to him and believing in him. Such a person will never go hungry or thirsty for anything else again. Jesus 
here, again, is not saying that if you come to me one time, you'll never be hungry or thirsty. Again, the promise is for those who keep on coming to him and keep on believing on him and keep on feasting upon him through faith. Jesus is promising that such a person will never go hungry or thirsty again because Jesus will satisfy. I don't know about you, but... uh, We've been bombarded in our household with political commercials of politicians making many, many bold promises. And in most cases, I know they're not going to keep those promises because they can't. No one can make the kind of promise that Jesus makes to you and to me here. Claiming to be the bread of life that comes down out of heaven from God and claiming that he can satisfy the hunger and the thirst of all people who come to him and believe in him, nobody can make that promise and no one can execute that promise. As Jesus declares to them, his audience that is before him, that has been pursuing him so aggressively, that I am the bread of life. Sadly, though, we're going to learn from what happens next that as Jesus speaks these climactic words, declaring himself as the bread of life, that he observes the disappointed look on the faces of the people that he's talking to. These people are serious and their pursuit of Jesus, and they're serious about what they want. They want a lifetime supply of groceries, and they thought they might be getting that from Jesus, even as they listened to some of what Jesus was just saying in the preceding verses, and yet now Jesus is pointing to himself as the bread of life that he's been talking about? Seriously? That's the way these people are thinking right now. They're more than willing to pursue Jesus and receive bread from him. But if he's the bread, then they're not sure they're really interested in that bread, which makes this a pretty deflating moment in the conversation. Clearly, these people listening to Jesus stand in need of a miraculous touch from God such that they could even be able to rightly believe in him as the bread of life that he is. And this leads us to the fourth act of Jesus to teach this pursuing, eager crowd about himself as the bread of life. Number four, Jesus explains who it is who believes in him and comes to him. He explains who it is who believes in him and comes to him. In verse 36, Jesus says to the crowd of people, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. I'm standing right in front of you. You guys are asking for a sign that you might see and believe. You're right now staring at the sign. You're staring at the bread of life that the Father has sent from heaven to you. Yet you don't believe. What you need is not another sign, but you need my Father to perform a miracle in your heart to enable you to rightly perceive me and believe in me. In verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, 
I will certainly not cast out. Jesus is saying the fact that you don't believe in me, I want you to know that that doesn't pose any threat to the success of my mission. In God's good time, every single person that the Father gives me will get to me and believe in me as the bread of life that I am. The Father will see to that. And anyone who comes to me and believes in me as the bread of life, I will not cast them out, but I will keep them forever. There's a double negative here in Jesus' promise that he will not cast out anyone who comes to him, which means that he's offering a double assurance that anyone who sees their need for the bread of life and they come to Jesus for that bread that he is, no matter how messed up that person may be or how awfully they've sinned, Jesus is saying, I won't cast them away. He will not reject them when they initially come to him, nor will he ever cast them aside at any point thereafter. No one will ever be too messed up for Jesus. No one who comes to Jesus will ever have too big of an appetite for him to handle. And the nourishment he provides will never run dry It'll never run out, so there will never be any need to turn anyone away because there's not enough bread to meet their needs. Yet even as Jesus is speaking these words, he's aware of the fact that there are some, if not many in his audience, who are never going to believe in him. Again, in verse 36, he says, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe Combining that thought with what he says in verse 37, Jesus is stating the fact that there are some in this audience whom the Father will be giving to him and some whom the Father will not be giving to him. And all of that is wrapped up in the sovereign plan of God that Jesus is resting in even in this moment. But for those of you who have come to Jesus or who may even come to Jesus this morning. Jesus is wanting you to know that if you do come to him for the bread of life that he is, he will view you as a gift from the Father to him. And he will never cast you aside. Because for Jesus to cast aside someone who comes to him in genuine faith would be tantamount to him throwing away a gift that his father has given to him. And Jesus would never do that to his father. Jesus wants to keep and cherish forever everyone whom the father gives to him. What will this keeping and cherishing look like in execution? This leads us to the final act of Jesus to teach this eager, pursuing crowd about himself as the bread of life. Number five, he guarantees, he guarantees that he will keep and raise up all those whom the Father gives him. He guarantees that he will keep and raise up all those whom the Father gives to him. Observe what he says in verses 38 and 39. 
He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is saying, I'm here to do the bidding of my father who sent me. And here are the twofold aspects of his will. Number one, that I lose absolutely no one that he gives to me. And number two, that I raise up every person he gives me on the last day. In other words, on that future day of resurrection, that they might live with me and with my Father in heaven forever. Jesus is assuring us here that if we come to him in faith, and believe in him as the bread of life that he is, he will take upon himself the full burden of our salvation from the beginning all the way through eternity. And he's putting his reputation on the line, suggesting that if any of his saved ones are not saved in the end, it would be to Jesus' own everlasting shame because it would mean either that he was incapable of performing what the Father willed for him to do, or that he was disobedient to his Father, and both of those are unthinkable options. Mark my words this morning, if the Father has given you to Jesus, Jesus will never let you be lost not simply because he loves you, and oh, he loves you, but because he loves his father, and he would never let his father down like that. Look at Jesus' final statement in verse 40. He says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Here is the will of God as Jesus sees it. God's will is that everyone who beholds his son in a believing way will have eternal life right now and all the way through eternity. And yes, such a person will die physically and their body will be buried in the ground, but it is the Father's will that Jesus raise up such a person on the day of resurrection, raising their body from the earth that they might live forever with Jesus and with the Father in heaven. You might want to write down this reference, 2 Corinthians 5.8. 2 Corinthians 5.8. We know from 2 Corinthians 5.8 that when a believer dies, he's immediately with the Lord in heaven, Right? Even though his body is left behind and his body may get buried in the ground, as Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in heaven. That said, Jesus is promising here in verse 40 that he will even raise up our bodies from the earth on the day of resurrection on that day, our earthly bodies will literally be raised by Jesus from the earth and will be clothed with immortality and with glory and will be reunited with our souls where we will then live with God in an embodied existence such as we will have for 
ever and ever. This destiny, Jesus is saying, is guaranteed for everyone who believes in him. This is what Jesus promises to do for all those whom the Father has given to him. And he is gracious in giving these promises to this crowd of people to point them toward himself as the bread of life that has come down out of heaven from God. We're going to pick up here next time, but just what we've covered today leaves each person in this room with a question. And that is, what will you do with Jesus, the bread of life? Will you come to Jesus and believe in him as your Lord and Savior? Will you receive him as the bread of life that he is? And once believing in him, will you keep on coming to him and believing in him and feasting upon him and satisfying the hunger and thirst of your soul in him? Will you recognize that the shape of the hunger and the thirst within you is the exact shape of Jesus Christ and that he is what your soul has been hungry and thirsty for all your life. Will you recognize that he is the only recipe that can satisfy the hunger and the thirst of your eternal soul? Or will you turn away from Jesus as the bread of life and keep running after other things to be your bread, trying to satisfy the appetite of your soul with the things that of this world that are doomed to leave you disappointed and more hungry and more thirsty than you were to start with. Also, even as a Christian, I would ask you this morning, have you been believing in Jesus as your bread of life this week? And think carefully before you answer that question. Do you truly believe that walking with him and enjoying relationship with him and feasting upon him is where true satisfaction of soul comes from? Or have you, even as a believer, been pursuing other things to satisfy your soul? Pursuing things that you know have never satisfied and they never will. If any of us try to satisfy our soul on the things of this world other than Jesus, we're forever going to be complaining with the rolling stones. I can't get no satisfaction. And I try, and I try, and I try, and I try, unquote. <laughs> if you do believe in Jesus as your bread of life, then you will forever be able to sing with the psalmist in Psalm 63, 5, when he says, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips.
Finally, just as we wrap up this morning, based on Jesus' words in our passage this morning, I just want to leave you with this thought that's just captured my heart this week. If you have come to Jesus and you have believed in him as the bread of life that he is, then your faith in Jesus is indication of the fact that you were given by the Father to Jesus, which means that you are God's gift to Jesus. And Jesus' language in our passage today shows you that this is how Jesus views you. I want you to cherish that fact this morning. Jesus is God's love gift to you, and what a gift he is. And you are God's love gift to Jesus, and Jesus is going to cherish you forever, not simply because he loves you, but because he loves the Father who gave you to him. Encouraged by these truths, we can then have the freedom to be like some of the pets that we own. We can always be at the feet of Jesus, wanting more, so long as it is more of Jesus that we are wanting. Every time you come to Jesus to feast your soul upon him Jesus observes your arrival and thanks the Father for giving you to him. He views you in that moment as a gift from the Father to him, and he's happy enough to see you for that reason alone. If you're a Christian, enjoy being God's love gift to Jesus, even when you come to him in your moments of brokenness and repentance and enjoy being viewed by Jesus in this way, even in such moments. And know that Jesus is always happy to see you when you come to him. And know that whenever you come to him, Jesus doesn't have the slightest doubt about his ability to fully satisfy your soul if you will just let him. Let's pray together. Lord, this is wonderful truth that we are just swimming in this morning. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would remove the scales from my eyes and from all of our eyes so that we would truly see Jesus for who he is and what he is. And that we would so see the beauty of his person and the wealth of nourishment in him that is the exact shape of the hunger and the thirst of our souls that he would be the one that we make a beeline for in order to find the satisfaction that our souls hunger and thirst for. Help us as believers to do this more faithfully. Thank you for the nourishment of your forgiveness, Lord Jesus, when we fall short of doing just that. 
We repent of ways that this past week we have pursued other things other than you. We drink deeply of your grace. And it is that grace that causes us to love you more and want to feast upon you more. And I pray, Lord, that if there's any here this morning who has never come to you, Lord Jesus, and believed in you, that today would be the day that they come to you, the bread of life, and receive from you the eternal life and the nourishment that their soul craves. Make them, Lord, satisfied with nothing else until they can find this satisfaction of knowing you. And help us as a people, Lord, not only to feast upon you, but to make your name known, to declare the good news to others that you, Lord Jesus, are the bread of life that they need and that we with confidence can make that declaration and know that if they would come to Jesus and believe in him and keep doing that, they truly won't hunger or thirst again. Help us, Lord, to faithfully carry this message to others as we believe it and live it ourselves. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,